0: Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm very pleased to have with us once more Professor Robert P. George. He holds Princeton University's McCormick Chair in Jurisprudence and is the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. This is his second appearance on Madison's Notes, so if you're a first time listener, I encourage you to find the time to listen to our first conversation, which aired as the first episode of this podcast. Uh, but today, our case is anew, and so we shall think anew and act anew. So, Professor Robert P. George, welcome back to Madison's Notes.
1: Thank you, Nino. It's good to be back for a second run. Uh,
0: well, this is a very special episode, uh, not just because it's your second appearance, but because we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the James Madison program. And uh, I'm reminded in reflecting on this anniversary of something Alexis de Tocqueville once wrote, and I'll quote him briefly here. As soon as several of the inhabitants of the United States have conceived a sentiment or an idea that they want to produce in the world, they seek each other out, and when they have found each other, they unite. From then on, they are no longer isolated men, but a power one sees from afar, whose actions serve as an example, a power that speaks, and to which one listens. So tell us, how did the Madison Program come to be? And for what purpose?
1: What a wonderful quotation from the great Tocqueville. Uh, Yes, that's how things happen in the United States of America. (laughs) Uh, And it's part of what makes us such a a wonderful and, and unique, exceptional is the term we use, country. We get an idea. We think the world can be made better. And then we share the idea with people who may agree that it's a good idea or give us some criticism or help to shape the idea. And then we work together uh, to put the idea into place. It might be to reform existing institutions or laws. It might be to create a new civic or uh, uh, economic or religious uh, or educational uh, institution. But that's what we do. And it's what I did. I arrived at Princeton as a uh, assistant professor In fact, I wasn't quite yet an assistant professor. I have to stop myself there. I was an instructor in 1985, and I was an instructor because I hadn't yet quite finished my doctorate, uh, which I was doing at Oxford uh, University. Uh, I had been to to law school and done a master's degree uh, before that, but I was finishing up at Oxford when I was hired at Princeton, and before I even finished, I came to Princeton, so that meant that I would have the rank of instructor. That's someone who doesn't yet have the PhD, but is a beginning member of the faculty. I arrived, I got my PhD during that year, right at the end of that year, and then began as an assistant professor in 1986. But I've been teaching since 1985, and my teaching assignments have included my main field, philosophy of law, which is what my doctoral dissertation was in, but also constitutional law and civil liberties. And I was especially interested within the area of philosophy of law in the concepts of natural law and natural rights, concepts that are critical to understanding the American founding, uh, the American regime, our form of government, the Republican form of government that was bequeathed to us by our uh, founders. And so I began teaching uh, these courses and conducting my own scholarly uh, research in this area. And as I did that uh, the idea occurred to me that it would be great to expand for the benefit of our students Princeton's historic offerings in the areas of philosophy of law and civil liberties and constitutional interpretation Princeton doesn't have a law school. It had one very briefly after the Civil War Uh, Just for a few years. I think it granted 12 LLB degrees, which was the law degree in those days for practitioners, and then closed up shop. And several times since then, the university has considered starting a law school. I think the most recent one was in the mid-1970s when it considered starting a law school. But for one reason or another, uh, uh, every time the university has, in the end, not done it. But we have a wonderful tradition, uh, going back to Woodrow Wilson, of teaching and scholarship in constitutional law and jurisprudence. Wilson was the first McCormick professor of jurisprudence, jurisprudence just being a fancy name for the philosophy of law. Uh, And it's a tradition that has been carried on with enormous distinction by Wilson's successors as McCormick professors, especially Edward S. Corwin, Alpheus T. Mason, and my own immediate predecessor in the chair, uh, Walter Murphy. So the idea occurred to me to build on that great tradition of offering Courses and doing scholarship in um, in um, constitutional law, in particular, in jurisprudence. How to do that? Well, I didn't want to establish a Princeton Law School. We have enough law schools, <laughs> and there are problems with law schools. They're great institutions. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying we should abolish the law schools. <laughs> Uh, But they're professional vocational institutions more than they are academic institutions or arts and sciences institutions. While good scholarship is conducted within them, their main purpose is to train lawyers, to train people for a particular profession, the practice of, of law. Law schools are not integrated into the arts and sciences, so the study of law at most universities because most universities, of the major universities at least, uh, have law schools, or at least a great many have law schools. Uh, law is not integrated into the arts and sciences as a subject of study, the way it is in many European universities, or in Oxford where I was doing my doctorate, or historically the way it's been at Princeton, but rather is outside of the arts and sciences as a, as a professional uh, field. So I didn't want to establish a law school because I wanted to maintain this great tradition of treating law as an arts and sciences subject. Understanding law within the context of the arts and sciences, in the same way that we study religion, or economics, or politics, or sociology, or English literature, or uh, what have you. So how could we improve things, make things better, uh, without fundamentally altering our approach to law? Well, the answer was to create a program, a new program that would enhance our teaching opportunities and our scholarship in public law and jurisprudence. And that was the James Madison program. I decided that it should be named the James Madison program because Madison is not only Princeton's most illustrious alumnus, he's the f- architect of the Constitution, fourth president of the United States, uh, uh, figure from the American Revolution and founding, uh, very important person not just for Princeton but for the country. He was also Princeton's first graduate student. When he finished his undergraduate degree, he stayed on uh, to study Hebrew at mm-hmm. the graduate level with his own mentor, uh, the, the great um, uh, preacher and scholar and signer of the uh, Declaration of Independence, John Witherspoon. So uh, I um, decided that we should do this, and I uh, got together with uh, some friends, uh, my friend Luis Tellez, uh, who ran a small foundation in town and who had worked with the university in other areas to enhance its strengths, particularly in the humanities. He'd helped to create the Princeton Society of Fellows. He'd worked with the Council on the Humanities. Uh, And with uh, friends who uh, were involved in some of my other projects and in my teaching uh, uh, as part of our preceptorial system uh, at Princeton, uh, people, uh, at least in the law subjects, who are lawyers or uh, trained in the law or trained in uh, constitutional or legal history or what have you, uh, teach with me in the law uh, classes. So Don Drakeman, Steve Whelan. Uh, these are uh, a couple of lawyers, uh, Mark O'Brien, who's trained in history, were people who uh, I was connected with. I knew were interested in this great tradition we have at Princeton of, uh, of teaching law in the arts and sciences. I got in touch with them and said, I want to create this institution. Uh, we're really just doing what Tocqueville says Americans do. And we did it. We went to uh, some funding sources, uh, to the um, um, John M. Olin Foundation, uh, which has now um, ceased to exist. Uh, pursuant to the founder's intent, it spent itself out of existence over a period of certain uh, a certain number of years. To the Bradley Foundation, the Lyndon Harry Bradley Foundation, on whose board I now sit, but in those days I was just a supplicant, I was just uh, someone there asking for money for the program. And we got some donations from some uh, alumni and friends. Uh, Herbert W. Vaughn, who was not a Princeton alumnus. uh, He was known as Wiley Vaughn, one of the great lawyers of our time, uh, senior partner with the firm of Hale & Doerr. Wiley was alive at the time, very active. Uh, He um, was a Harvard alumnus and Harvard Law School alumnus, but he was disaffected from Harvard. Uh, because he felt that uh, Harvard did not provide students with sufficient viewpoint diversity and uh, serious uh, examination of uh, issues of law and politics and and morality. But he was willing to back what we were doing at Princeton, even though he had no connection. Steve Forbes, who's a Princeton alum, very distinguished and generous uh, Princeton alum, uh, like Wiley Vaughn, he uh, gave us an important gift. He actually um, uh, allocated a gift to us that he had made in connection with a capital campaign uh, that the university had run. So that gave us the resources to get up and running. Uh, I uh, negotiated with uh, our provost at the time, a wonderful uh, figure, uh, astrophysicist of enormous distinction, uh, Jeremiah Ostreicher, Jerry Ostreicher as we knew him, uh, who was my negotiation partner under the presidency of Harold Shapiro. Um, and. He and I worked out terms for the program. It would be located within the Department of Politics. That would be its institutional home. Uh, I would be the initial uh, director. Uh, It would be uh, governed in part by an advisory council of uh, distinguished friends, alumni and others, and contributors from the worlds of law and uh, business and other uh, professions and academia. Uh, it was then blessed by uh, President Shapiro, and we uh, went into business. We, we date our founding to July fourth, uh, 2000, so we are indeed celebrating our 20th uh, anniversary. And we've gone from a little tiny thing uh, on our campus uh, to a pretty big and influential thing. Uh, thank God, I'm so pleased. Had so much support, uh, first from the uh, Shapiro administration, then from the Tillman administration, who succeeded President Shapiro, Shirley Tillman. And now from Chris Eisgruber, who is an, himself an eminent constitutional scholar and has been very supportive of the work of the, of the James Madison program. We're so grateful uh, for that. Uh, we try to practice what we preach in the program. Uh, In the courses that we sponsor and in the uh, events that we do, we try to make sure that the range of reasonable and responsible points of view are represented. Students are not indoctrinated. They're given a wide variety of points of view, and they hear the very best that's to be said for any of those uh, points of view. Uh, I don't believe in indoctrination. I don't believe in other people indoctrinating their students. I don't want to do it myself. I don't believe in indoctrinating people from the left, and I don't believe in indoctrinating people from the right. I don't believe in indoctrinating people. I believe in teaching, and teaching means provoking students to wrestle with ideas, the best that has been said, the best that has been thought uh, on the competing sides of all controversial questions, whether they're great general questions, what is the nature of justice, or they're very specific questions, should we have the death penalty or not have the death penalty. I think students need to wrestle with the competing points of view so that they can learn to think, and here's our motto in the Madison program, Nino, so that they can learn to think deeply, critically, and for themselves. Our belief in the Madison program is that thinking is not something you can outsource. You can't form that out to anybody else. I, as your teacher, can't do it for you. <laughs> The faculty shouldn't be doing it for you and shouldn't be trying to do it for you. You need to do it for yourself. What we can do is to help you learn to think more deeply, more critically, and independently. That is uh, for yourself, and we try to represent that and uh, and uh, uphold that and set an example of that uh, on the on the Princeton campus. Well, I've rattled on uh, for a bit. You uh, know the rest of the story and perhaps some of uh, our listeners to the podcast know the the rest of the story. Uh, We've grown uh, into a major institution on the Princeton campus and the model that we represent has now been emulated all over the country. Uh, There are programs uh, that are modeled on the Madison program at some of the great state universities, uh, Arizona State, for example, now the University of Colorado, one is coming online at the University of North Carolina. Two have just been founded uh, in state institutions at Florida, one at Florida State University, one at um, uh, Florida Atlantic, I'm sorry, Florida International University, uh, and at uh, Distinguished Private uh, Universities. Uh, The program in human flourishing at uh, Harvard is modeled in part, although it's not a program in constitutional law and uh, political thought, it's modeled uh, on the Madison program. Uh, the McHugh Program at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University, the program in moral philosophy under Candace Vogler at the uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, uh, these 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 programs try to represent the values, the academic values, and the approaches to intellectual life that we represent in the Madison program. And we didn't pioneer them. We didn't create them. Socrates created them. <laughs> We're just trying to be good, loyal disciples of uh, our great teachers, like uh, Socrates and uh, Plato and uh, Aristotle. Uh, We um, believe that universities are truth-seeking institutions, or should be. That's their mission, and that's our mission and to seek the truth you have to be open to ideas and to arguments and to challenges. You need an atmosphere of freedom, what John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century British liberal philosopher, called freedom of thought and expression, or freedom of thought and discussion. Everybody needs to feel free and be free to explore ideas, think their minds, even think radical thoughts, engage with each other, challenge and be willing to be uh, uh, challenged. Uh, That's what what we represent. We also represent the view that the American ideal or the set of ideals that we are referring to when we talk about American ideals and institutions, that the Republican democracy that um, was founded in 1776, we represent the view that this is a great experiment in ordered liberty that is worth our intellectual attention. We don't require anybody to believe in it. We don't require anybody to believe anything. Everything's on the table for debate. But we do think that this is worth studying and understanding as deeply as possible. Now, I believe, but this is just one person's belief, I believe that people, students and others, who deeply study American ideals and institutions, the Declaration of Independence, the founding, the principles of our government is articulated not only by our founders, but by people like Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, going all the way up to Martin Luther King. I think that people who study them will come as I have come to appreciate them more and more deeply. So many of us in the Madison program, know no one is required to have any particular belief, many of us not only study American ideals and institutions, we strongly believe in them and want to uphold them. And part of our motivation for studying them is we, we think understanding them better will enable people to appreciate them more, uh, to understand what great gifts they are, given that the history of the world is largely a, a history of tyranny and abuse. Um, uh, we believe, we we hope, that by helping people more deeply and critically to understand uh, America's founding principles, they'll have a better Um, commitment, a fuller, a deeper, a richer commitment to preserving them. And they're always under fire. They're always under assault. We also don't want to whitewash our history. We acknowledge that our history has been marred by great evils, crimes against Native American Indian populations, the horrific sin of slavery, followed by segregation and the horrors of Jim Crow. We recognize all that. We want our students fully understand all that. But it's also important to understand that whenever we have gone wrong, morally wrong, whenever we have committed injustices, that has not been because of our principles. It hasn't been because of American ideals. On the contrary, when we've gone wrong, it has always been the result of infidelity to the great principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. A lack of faithfulness to the principle that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We Americans are at our best. We're being true to our principles when we understand that each and every member of the human family just in virtue of his humanity, not his strength, not his beauty, not his intelligence, just in virtue of his humanity, is the bearer of a profound, inherent, and equal dignity. And that all other decisions should be made on the basis of that foundation. Now reasonable people can disagree with how best to honor that core principle. The Constitution sets in place some institutions that, uh, that are, are meant to respect and encourage respectfulness to that great principle of justice, of morality, uh, and there are legitimate differences of opinion about what policies are best at any given time, for example. Uh, those are fine. Those are debatable. Let's have those debates. But I believe they should be founded on the common ground, the point of agreement from which we can then work out our disagreements, argue out our disagreements, should be the principle of the inherent dignity, the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. Articulated by Jefferson in those terms that I quoted, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. This is the tradition of natural law and natural rights that is at the foundation of the American experiment in order to liberty and of American exceptionalism. What do we mean when we speak of American exceptionalism? Some people think we shouldn't speak of American exceptionalism. They think that's a bad thing to speak of American exceptionalism. They think we're claiming we're better than other people. Well, that's not what we're claiming. That's not what American exceptionalism is all about. It's not rah, rah, beat our chest, say how great we are and how bad other people are. On the contrary, what American exceptionalism is, is the idea that we as Americans are bound together not by blood or soil, not by throne or altar, allegiance to a particular king, allegiance to a particular religion, membership in a particular race or ethnicity. No, that's not what binds us together. We're not even bound together by you know, uh, a culture going back into the early Middle Ages or anything like that. We don't, we don't have a f- founding myth of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or anything like that. So what binds us together? This is what's exceptional. This is what is unique. We are a people bound together by a common commitment to a moral political creed, the idea that there are God-given natural human rights. There is a God-given dignity to the human person that's at the core of the common good. That we all have a common good that's partially articulable in terms of rights, but not wholly. goes beyond just rights. But there's a common good that we have because of our common humanity. That there are goods that are common to all of us and that we pursue or pursue best by common effort. So it's not the radical individualism of some extreme libertarians, or even the Lockean view. Locke had influence on the founding, but it's a mistake to think of America as just a Lockean right. um, country. No, we have a powerful understanding of the common good, a rich understanding of the common uh, of the common good. We also have a found of a, a, a rich understanding of rights, including the rights of the person, what we sometimes call individual rights, the rights articulated, for example, in the Bill of Rights. Uh, that is the uh, first eight amendments to the Constitution, uh, or first nine, depending on how you, uh, you, you, you count them. Or some people would say the first 10, although that <laughs> is awkward. Uh, or add the 14th, or what have you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we Americans, we have a rich conception and understanding of the common good, or we should, and we have a rich understanding of rights. And we do not see, as, see the idea of rights as, as in, in conflict with the common good. We don't see rights even as constraints on the pursuit of the common good. We see rights as aspects and respects for rights as aspects of the common uh, common good. So I see this as the heart of American exceptionalism. And it's what's made it possible for people to come from all lands and all different backgrounds. Your ancestors from Sicily, my ancestors from Syria, our friends' ancestors who come from Japan, uh, from Indonesia, uh, from Afghanistan, uh, from France, from Ghana, uh, from all over the world, they can come to America and they can become fully and truly Americans. Wave after wave of immigrants. So there's legitimate debates about immigration, how much there should be, when it should, co- when immigration should be. Uh, limited when when we need more immigrants, when we need less. My point here is not to get into the debate over immigration. It's something I have views about. Somebody ask me, I'll tell them. <laughs> but uh, but to point out that people do not become Americans simply by being born here. We have birthright citizenship. If you're born here, you're uh, you're, an, you're an American citizen, subject to certain caveats. But but basically, we have birthright citizenship but anybody can come here and generations upon generations have had people come here and become fully and truly americans by virtue of signing on to that creed and taking responsibility the assuming the responsibilities of citizenship you sign on for the principles of the declaration of independence you swear allegiance to the constitution then you're as an american as american as the guy who came over on the mayflower right or uh, as, as American as anybody, whoever the mo- you consider the most American person uh, to be. Now, I don't think that's how you become French. Now, it's possible to become a French citizen. Uh, there's a procedure for doing that. But, um, you know, it's hard to become really French if you're not, or, or Chinese, or in most other cultures, because the, what, they don't have the idea that it's a creed. It's signing on to a set of beliefs that's the essence of Americanism. Right. Or your, of, of your national identity.
0: Yeah, you'll, you'll hear people it? say that uh, something is un-American far more often than you hear someone say it's un-French or it's un-German. No.
1: Uh, correct. Correct. Because the thing you're violating are principles. You're right. accused of violating principles. And those principles are American principles. Now, by their own terms, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, they're not principles that are limited to Americans. We believe anybody can sign on to them, and we believe the principles apply to and protect everybody. Notice what it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That what? All men, all human beings, all members of the human family are created equal. They don't say we hold it as self-evident all American citizens are equal. We don't say that. We certainly don't say things like you know, all white people or black people or Asians or uh, people from uh, Sicily. We, we don't say that stuff. We say every member of the human family is the bearer of inherent dignity. And, and then when we have debates, the debates proceed from there. Uh, One of my teachers, uh, the late Ronald Dworkin, uh, not not somebody I agreed with very much, (laughs) Professor Dworkin and I were on opposite sides of most of the things we ever talked about, Uh, but he um, was a great uh, uh, liberal thinker and uh, he um, uh, pointed out that uh, in political theory in our time, uh, we've reached what might be called the the egalitarian plateau. that is, everybody believes whatever else they believe in equality. They have different ideas about what equality requires in concrete circumstances. Uh, they would resolve issues differently. You know, uh, does does e- equality require that you redefine marriage in this way or that way? Is same-sex marriage or polyamory or polygamy or what? We have debates about that, but that. We should respect the principle of equality, that we don't debate because we're on this plateau where everybody believes in that. Uh, we're no longer in a situation where people are debating whether all men are created equal, all human beings are equal in worth and dignity. We expect that to be uh, taken, taken for granted. That wasn't always true for most of human history and most times in most places, and most learned people included, did not believe in human equality. We do, and our debates proceed from there. Now, it's possible to believe in human equality and come to very different conclusions about what it, uh, what it entails uh, for institutional decisions or concrete policy decisions or as a matter of moral judgment, but we do begin from this principle. And and we can say this much. If you're not beginning from that principle, you're un-American. <laughs> you might be an American citizen, right? but if you believe some people are better than other people inherently because of their race, because of their sex, ethnicity their backgrounds, uh, or or even what they think, right? I don't think people who disagree with me are inferior to me. If I think people who disagree with me are inferior to me as human beings, less bearers of human rights, less bearers of dignity, that's an un-American thing for me to think or say. I don't want to think or say anything like that. I happen to think they're wrong by definition. If they think one thing and I think the opposite thing, we both have to think the other is wrong, but we don't have to question the inherent and equal dignity of people who Disagree with us. I might disagree with what you do, but that doesn't mean that I undervalue your dignity or think you're inferior in worth and uh, and dignity. Martin Luther King did not approve, to say the least, of the way segregationists conducted themselves. He condemned their actions and their beliefs, but not their inherent. He didn't he didn't undervalue them. He did not believe they were of lesser worth. And dignity. Quite the contrary. His whole point was they go wrong because they believe other people are of uh, less than equal worth and dignity. Right. Uh, they they go wrong because they're being un-American. Uh, King King taught that the Declaration of Independence was a great promissory note. He didn't reject American ideals and institutions. He embraced them. That's
0: right. And he said, let's
1: make good on them. Let's be let's be faithful, more zealously faithful to our founding principles. It's time for that promissory note to be paid on. And let's give black people, as well as white people, equality.
0: I want to talk about civil society, And I'm curious, what impact uh, do these formal institutions of higher learning that you mentioned, like Princeton University, like the James Madison program, uh, what impact do these institutions of higher learning have on civil society? What do they either contribute to society when they're functioning properly and pursuing truth? uh, But what harm might they do if they neglect this mission?
1: Well, Nino, let's go back to your friend Tocqueville. Uh, so much wisdom there. And Tocqueville noticed something else about America. Not only do we get together and do things, we get together and do things without the government telling us what to do. Uh, we respect the law. His book is called Democracy in America. We aspire to be democratic. That was not a term favored by our founding fathers. That, that had for them connotations of mob rule. They, right. they referred the term republic and the term republican. Uh, but, you know, language shifts and, and what they had in mind today is captured by the idea of a democratic republic. We try to be a democratic republic. But Tocqueville, you know, was certainly aware that Americans are democratic people. We aspire to democracy to be better and richer and fuller and more authentic uh, democracy. But he also recognized that Americans understand the limits of politics and the limits of government. We believe in limited government. Much of what the Constitution does, your esteemed grandfather, the the, the original Nino Scalia, <laughs> uh, was so brilliant on this, and he would drive the point home. He visited the Madison Program several times, and right. he was always a great friend of the Madison Program and a great supporter. But he would drive the point home that... Our government is a government of limited powers. Government was supposed to do its part and had an important role to play to protect public health, safety, and morals. But its role was limited and it had to avoid, it was necessary, important for it to avoid overstepping its bounds and usurping the authority of non-governmental authority structures, non-governmental associations and institutions. That's what Tocqueville meant by the institutions of civil society, which he said Americans were so um, uh, jealous to protect rightly and, and, and relied on so much uh, to just do the work of health, education, and welfare, transmitting to each new generation the values and virtues necessary Uh, to lead successful lives and to be good uh, democratic citizens. Um, This is really critically important. So government is one thing. Good government is great, but good government is limited. And where it doesn't go, where it doesn't have authority, who does? Well, not just the naked individual, Certainly we believe in individual rights, we believe in individual initiative, we believe in individual responsibility, we're not collectivists. I'll guarantee your grandfather was not a collectivist. (laughs) (laughs) But he understood, as Tocqueville understood, and as I try to remind myself and understand, that the game is not just two players, government and the individual. There's a third, the institutions of civil society, beginning with the family, the religious community church, synagogue, mosque, temple, the uh, various voluntary associations that we create to assist families and churches and other institutions in transmitting the values and virtues necessary for people to be honorable, decent people, lead successful lives, independent lives, uh, to be good citizens, good citizens of a democracy. Uh, the, uh, the Campfire Girls, the 4-H, uh, uh, the, some of these institutions you know, wander and stray from their original uh, paths, but certainly the idea behind the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, Little League. Uh, you can think of the, 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 uh, the various groups that have been set up by ethnic groups, uh, Italian groups, Jewish uh, groups, uh, uh, g- groups that have an ethnic heritage and they they ally together in order to um, uh, help people. Uh, Often people aren't even members of their own uh, groups. Um, These institutions of civil society are really key and educational institutions play a major role there. Um, Not all of our educational institutions are public obviously in the sense that they're state-run or state or state-funded and they have an important role to play. Princeton University is one of them. We like most uh, universities and colleges these days, rely on a lot of governmental support. But at the same time, uh, while the government's supporting some of the research that goes on in the university, we rely a lot on private support, and we're still fundamentally a private university. We're not government-run. There are limits to what the government can do when it comes to telling us what to do. Well, that comes with responsibility, to be good institutions of civil society and to play our role in this domain it's the role of education or what might be called formation. Trying to help students to lead successful lives and be equipped to be good citizens. We hope great citizens of this democratic republic. Uh, The James Madison program is really designed to assist with that. One of the areas where I think colleges and universities have fallen short is in civic education. This isn't just my subjective opinion. Uh, when we were founding the Madison program, there was a recent report out from the Carnegie Foundation that was lamenting the poor quality of civic education in American colleges and universities. It's been relegated to the status of a high school subject, and wasn't even being doing uh, wasn't even being taught too well in high schools. But the Carnegie Foundation called for a renewal, a a revival of civic education and improving, uh, reforming of civic education at the college and university level. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what we do. We want to provide the very best civic education. Madison said that only a well-educated people could permanently be a free people.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now by a well-educated people, he didn't fundamentally mean people who were educated in physics. Or, or could do high, high you know, higher mathematics. What he fundamentally meant, he was all for learning in all domains, don't get me wrong, but what he fundamentally meant was only a, a people who are civically educated, educated in their constitution, whether it's written or unwritten, educated in the principles of their government, educated in the nature of their regime as a monarchy, as a republic, or as an aristocracy, or whatever it is, only a people who knew the principles of civic life in their society could maintain their freedom. Because if they're ignorant of them, then they're going to be robbed of their freedom by demagogues who become tyrants. They're going to be tricked. They're going to be uh, duped. Uh, They will eventually lose their freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Republican government, what our founders called Republican, and what Lincoln called, following our founders, Republican government, is government of, for, and by the people. Now, all government is government of the people, nothing special there. All good government is government for the people, even the government of a benign uh, despot, you know, like a very well-intentioned king. That's, that can be good government in, in that the people are treated well, The person, the king's not a tyrant, but that's not Republican government. Republican government is that third, adds that third thing. It's not only government of the people and for the people, but by the people. This is what Lincoln was getting at. And government by the people means we're the decision makers, we the people. We the people, those first three words of the Constitution, we the people are the decision makers. How do we make good decisions? Well, you can't even begin to make a good decision unless you understand the principles of your regime, the principles of your government, the civic, uh, the principles of civic life in your society. So if we don't understand our declaration of independence, if we don't understand the principle of equal human dignity, if we don't understand the principles of the Constitution, if we don't understand the functioning of the institutions, what Congress is supposed to do, what the President is supposed to do, what the courts are supposed to do. What Congress is not supposed to do. What the president is not supposed to do, what the courts are not supposed to do, (laughs) then we have no hope of making good policy. We're never going to be able to keep our government under control. And because we won't be able to keep our government under control, we will lose our freedom. So as Madison said, only a well-educated people can permanently be a free people. Our job in the Madison program, and we'd like to see this around the country, we we don't want to be unique. We, We don't want to be special. We want every university to have a program every bit as good as ours. We want to have a program better than ours, so we'll have something to aspire to, to get better ourselves, so that our young people can be formed as good citizens, as understanding citizens, as citizens who know how to think deeply and critically, know how to think well and independently about this regime of ordered liberty, this Republican form of government.
0: I'm curious, Professor George, when you reflect on these past 20 years, uh, and this is going to be an impossibly broad question, but I'll ask it anyway. What what stands out to you? Uh, What have you learned? Uh, Any unexpected difficulties or triumphs?
1: What I've learned is that students love to talk about these issues. They love to learn about American ideals and institutions. Uh, I, uh, I guess I'm, a little surprised. I knew there was a market there. I didn't know how good the market was, how big the market is. Uh, I knew because my courses in constitutional interpretation and civil liberties had always been pretty heavily subscribed. So that gave me an idea that, that you know, students really are interested in, uh, in these issues. Uh, when we founded the Madison program, we found that students really did want more they wanted to be good citizens. They wanted to learn to be good citizens. They wanted to explore in a serious way uh, the principles of American civic life and understand the institutions created by the Constitution uh, better than uh, than than what they had previously understood and stood them to be. I mean, most students come to us, even those out of the best high schools who I assume have had some sort of uh, civics classes, most students I would say a very substantial majority of students come not understanding that the national government, what we call the federal government in the United States, is a government of delegated and enumerated powers. Their uncritical implicit understanding, no one has ever told them differently, I guess, is that the national government is a government of general jurisdiction, that it has plenary authority, that it can do whatever it wants so long as it doesn't violate people's individual rights like those set out in the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and so forth. Of course, that is the very reverse of the truth. (laughs) The national government is not a government of general jurisdiction. Its powers are not plenary. Rather, it's a government of delegated and enumerated powers. The states, by contrast, are governments of general jurisdiction exercising Police power, what we call police powers, powers to uphold public uh, health, safety, and morals, and to advance the, uh, the common good. But all of this comes to a surprise, as a surprise to most of our students, despite the fact that our students are, gosh, in so many cases, the valedictorians of their class, the highest of high flyers. They have off-the-charts SAT scores. They have perfect grade point averages. These are great students. It's not their fault that they don't know. They're They're, they're brilliant. But, but they need the information. Somebody's got to give it to them. And so often no one has, evidently. So they come and they're interested in learning these things. What does it mean for the national government to be a government of delegated and enumerated powers? And if the states are governments of general jurisdiction, then what are the limits of their powers? There are, there are all, all sorts of questions. Uh, questions of the separation of powers. You know, well, what is the boundary line between Congress and the president, or Congress and the court, or the president and the court? Do do presidents always have to obey whatever the Supreme Court says? Is our system a system of judicial supremacy? Can you have judicial review of legislation, which has been practiced at least since 1803 by the Supreme Court of the United States in the United States, uh, without having judicial supremacy? Is there an alternative to it? Lincoln thought so. But nowadays, people seem to think that judicial review means judicial supremacy. So was Lincoln wrong? If so, where did he go wrong? Or if he was right, where did so many people today go wrong? These are wonderful questions. And they're not just important, abstract, intellectual puzzles that are fun to think about. They are fun to think about. But they have real-world consequences. Students who understand correctly the principles of our civic order, of this experiment in ordered liberty, this system of Republican government, something that you know, was, was a bolt out of the blue in the 18th century, at a time when everybody thought Republican government never works. This, this experiment can only succeed if these young men and women become adult citizens who really know the principles of their civic life and understand the role and function and limits of the institutions by which those principles are meant to be
0: effectuated. We're running low on time here, so I have one more question for you, and it's it's looking ahead to the future. Uh, What do you hope to see for the program in the next 20 years? What would make those 20 years a success?
1: Oh, (laughs) Uh, I I, want to say more of the same. Uh, I want Princeton to continue to recruit and attract superstar students, uh, and I hope that that a great many of those superstar students will, as their predecessors have, uh, become interested and involved in the Madison program, become undergraduate fellows of the Madison program, attend Madison program events take the courses that are sponsored uh, by the Madison program, become loyal and faithful alumni of the Madison (laughs) program, and help us in the way that alumni uh, help uh, universities all all over the country. I hope to be able to continue to have the wonderful staff that we have in the Madison program. I often say, and this is absolutely true, it's, uh, it's the best staff in the university and the best staff of any university uh, program known to me at any university uh, in, in the country. But, of course, some of you are young people, and you're going to go on to great things, uh, great new adventures. Uh, and when you do, I hope we can just find successors that uh, are worthy of uh, the big shoes that you're going to leave them uh, uh, to fill um, I've had the blessing, uh, especially in the most recent years of just having this wonderful staff to execute the agenda and the program of the Madison uh, program and then I get to go around collecting all the uh, accolades and honors of uh, uh, being the director of the, of the Madison program. Uh, I'd also uh, Nino like in the next 20 years to see even more, programs around the country modeled on the Madison program. I love it when delegations come to us, uh, as they have from North Carolina and from Florida and from Colorado in the past, uh, to spend a day or two uh, to look under the hood, kick the tires, talk to members of our staff, talk to faculty members associated with the Madison program, uh, uh, talk to our students with a view to creating a program modeled on the Madison program at their home institution. Uh, as I said, I don't want to be unique. I want this little gospel to spread. Uh, I, I'm an evangelist for the, uh, for the, for the Madison program and for the study of American ideals and That's institutions. Right. And if I can be plain, also for American ideals and institutions, but uh, I don't want to shove that down anybody's throat. Um, so those are the things that I'd most, I'd, I'd, I'd most like to see. I, I hope that I am able to stick around for 20 years uh, on this earth to uh, uh, to see it. But I'm, I, I'm, I'm so pleased with these past 20 years uh, with the help of so many wonderful people, some of the founding fathers of the Madison program whom I mentioned earlier and then the wonderful staff that we've got. Uh, I've, I've been amazed at, uh, at the success of the program. I, I thought it would work but I didn't realize it would be as important and influential mm-hmm. as it's become and do the amount of good it's been able to do. I was just on a call a few minutes ago with a group of alumni, most of whom were former undergraduate fellows of the Madison program, and and hearing them speak so intelligently about American ideals and institutions. Uh, We were were on the call to talk about uh, freedom of speech and other important values, which are always under threat, and are under threat, of course, uh, today. And to hear them articulate the principles and and, and reason about how to apply the principles to concrete circumstances, that was so gratifying for me. I mean, you take the raw ingredients, these brilliant young men and women, and you equip them with some knowledge, and you force them to confront ideas uh, that are challenging uh, to them, they're going to grow like crazy, and they're going to become more brilliant as people, and they're going to become great citizens and great leaders. So I just want to see more of it.
0: Well, 20 years from now, you and I will sit down again and and we'll talk about what these 40 years then of the Madison program have done. And congratulations on on all that the James Madison program has accomplished. Uh, And I'll just add that it's it's just such an honor uh, to be a part of the program. And I can't wait to see what these next 20 years bring. So Professor George, thank you.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Nino. And I am glad to have you on our staff and all our other wonderful members of the staff. Um, let me take this 20th anniversary occasion to say
0: God bless all of you. Well, there you have it. It's always a treat to hear from Professor George, and there's seemingly no end to all we can learn from him. Thank you for joining us as we celebrate the James Madison Program's 20th anniversary. If you'd like to support our work going forward, you can visit jmp.princeton.edu gift. To learn how to contribute. We thank you in advance for your generosity. Now normally we would draw to a close here, but today is of course not only the Madison Program's birthday but the anniversary of our nation's birth. So in celebration, Dr. Alan Gelzo, renowned historian and director of the Madison Program's initiative on politics and statesmanship, was kind enough to record for us a narration of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Uh, so I encourage you to read along, and to reflect on the task ever before us, to cherish, to preserve, and to strive always to live up to those principles of the Declaration. So without further ado, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, November 19th, 1863.
2: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.